to read, and she has agreed. I'll be making the point in the message this morning that Christians saw salvation as a new exodus, and you see that kind of language uh, in Colossians chapter 1, which uh, Rosalie will now read, Colossians 1, 3 through 14. Colossians 1, verses 3 through 14. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son who he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, uh, Rosalie. Well, Pastor Greg in previous weeks has been preaching from the book of Romans and through Romans 5 in particular in a series titled Abundant Life in Christ. This is a series that he and I planned uh, some months ago, and he was going to tackle chapter 5. I was going to tackle chapter 6. I don't know who got the more difficult assignment. Chapter 5 is very difficult. I thought Pastor Greg did an amazing job with uh, very complex ideas that Paul presents. But the ideas that Paul presents in chapter 6 are equally complex as we will see. In fact, I was supposed to preach on the first 10 verses of Romans 6. I decided yesterday to preach only on the first four verses uh, cut my message in two, and someone said to me, oh, does that mean that you know the message is only going to be 20 minutes this morning? And I said, no, what it means is that it won't be three hours. There's so much content. I'm not sure what I'm going to do next week yet, whether I preach five through ten or, or whether I go on to preach the verses I was planning to preach for next week, verses 11 through uh, 15. That still remains to be determined, but I will read at least the first 10 verses of Romans 6, even though we'll be directing our attention especially and only to the first four verses. Romans 6. Romans 6, the first 10 verses. 
What shall we say then, the apostle asked, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. This is the word of the Lord. For many years, Skip Ryan was the pastor of Park City's Presbyterian Church, a very large and significant church in Dallas, Texas. Some of you may know the name. He wrote a number of books. When he was a young pastor, he served in Virginia, and he decided, as a young pastor, that he was going to preach on Romans 6, the opening verses of Romans 6. And I once heard him tell this story where... After he had preached the sermon, he concluded by saying, I don't think I really know what this text is about. Please come back next week, and I'll try again. And so the very next Sunday, he tried once again to preach on the opening verses of Romans 6, felt completely unsatisfied again, and so said again, I, I, I don't think I've quite understood it yet, so please come back next Sunday, and I'll try again. And he made three attempts to explain Romans 6, and in the end was still quite dissatisfied, but he kept the number at least to three sermons. These are very difficult verses to explain, and yet they're very important verses to understand, and they're all about identity. Now, identity is a bit of a buzzword, today, isn't it? We talk about racial identity and gender identity. We talk about cultural identity, identity politics. Identity is a word you often hear because identity is something people find to be very important, and so does the Apostle Paul. The category of identity is important, and he believes that when we become new believers, we receive a new identity, and this new identity determines our destiny. Who we are changes how we live. Now, do you want to change how you live? Are you satisfied with where you are as a Christian? Do you want to grow in grace? Do you want to do a better job repenting? You can go to a Christian bookstore. You can go on, I should say, you can go on Amazon now. That's, that's the new Christian bookstore, isn't it? You can go online and you can find many Christian books about how to grow as a Christian, how to mature as a Christian, how to change as a Christian, how to repent. And you can get some very good tips in those books. I think that if the Apostle Paul were ever to write a book about 
How to Grow as a Christian, he would probably title the book, Remember Your Identity. And I think the subtitle would probably be, Who You Are Changes How You Live. Who You Are Changes How You Live. Well, I was going to preach a two-point sermon this morning, each with two subpoints. Instead, I'm just going to preach the first point of the sermon. And so, if we could have that slide with the uh, outline. The two subpoints of my first point now are going to become the main points of the sermon. A license to sin, nope. A baptism to remember, yep. Those are the two things we're going to look at in the opening five verses of Romans 6. Some years ago, I sat on a panel advising university students who were applying for grad school, and I had to provide some advice about things to do and not to do in the process of applying for grad school. One of the points I made is that undergraduate students ought to always be respectful of their professors. Because one day you'll need one of those professors to write a reference letter for you when you go to grad school. And I've met many bright students who can be quite antagonistic in class, quite disrespectful to their professors, and then when they want to go to grad school, there's nowhere to turn to find a reference from a professor. The lesson that we're learning here is that actions yield consequences, and bad actions yield bad consequences, and we have all kinds of sayings that illustrate this point, such as, You've dug your own grave. You've cooked your own goose. You've made your bed, now you need to lie in it. You've stirred the pot, now taste the soup. Did you know about that one? Did you know? I didn't know. I was on ChatGPT yesterday. It's a new way pastors write sermons, by the way. I was on ChatGPT, and I was like, what are alternative ways of saying you made your bed, now lie in it? You stirred the pot, now taste the soup. That is gold. I'm going to use that more often. But it's one of these things that illustrates this point that actions yield consequences. There's cause and effect. And, of course, our Buddhist and Hindu friends have a doctrine that captures this reality, and it's called karma. What goes around comes around. And in some views of reincarnation, if you live a bad life, Here, you might come back as a dog in the next life. Wouldn't that be something? If I had to choose an animal, it would be an eagle. Wouldn't it be nice to be an eagle? Never a dog, but if you live a bad life now, you can come back as a dog or, I don't know, a rat or a possum. I'm trying to think of animals I don't particularly care for. But this is a reality that you all know is is true in life, and it's something that the Bible acknowledges. The Bible says what you sow, you reap. And in Romans 5, this uh, chapter that Pastor Greg so wonderfully exposited for us, you see this in terms of sin. What is the consequence of sin? What consequence does sin yield? Well, it yields death. That is the consequence. Actions yield death consequences, sin yields death. And Paul says in Romans 5, 12, in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And we have no power to interrupt that sequence. We have no power to interrupt the inevitable sequence of sin leading to death. But, says the Apostle Paul, there is power in the world to interrupt that sequence, and that power is called grace. Grace. 
There's no religion in the world that has a concept like this. It's God's concept, and it's called grace, and grace interrupts the natural sequence of cause and effect of actions and consequences so that sin, for some at least, does not lead to death. Grace is the power in the world that can interrupt that sequence, and grace is God's action in us to do what is humanly impossible. We have nothing in and of ourselves to interrupt this sequence. Grace is God's action in us to do what is humanly impossible. Grace is more powerful than sin. It can stop sin dead in its tracks. And in fact, Paul says, if there's a lot of sin, it just means that there's even more grace. That's what he says in verse 20, right? Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, Paul knows that if people are tracking with him, following the logic, there's going to be one person who will say, well, if all of this is true, if more sin generates more grace, why not keep sinning to experience even more grace? doesn't take much to see the logic in it. And the Apostle Paul, of course, recoils at the idea. Shall we go on sinning? He says, nope, by no means in the King James Version. God forbid this is inconceivable that you would go on sinning because of this logic. More sin generates more grace. Now, I want to ask you this morning, how would you respond to somebody who, who brought that question to you, who said, well, if more sin generates more grace, sh- should we keep on sinning? So God has the opportunity to show more grace. How would you respond? I imagine some of us might say, no, we ought to keep God's commandments. God, God's commandments reveal God's will. We ought not to break God's will. We ought not to disappoint displease God, so we should not keep sinning. Very sensible response, I think. It's nothing remotely close to what Paul says. He says something very puzzling instead. He says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, did you know that? If you're a Christian believer, did you know that you've died to sin? Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that you now have immunity from sin. Sadly, there is a Bible version that translates that last phrase in that way. It's a J.B. Phillips translation, which is otherwise quite reliable and often quite creative. It says, anyone who has died can safely be said to be immune from sin. I don't think that's what Paul's saying at all. I wonder by a show of hands how many people here experience immunity from sin. And if you do experience immunity from sin, I'd like to meet you after the service. You're a rare bird to be completely immune from it. doesn't say, Paul doesn't mean that we no longer struggle with sin, no longer face the presence, presence of sin. What he is saying is that your relationship to sin has now changed. And your relationship to sin has now changed because you have a new identity. Well, what is your identity as a believer in Christ? Well, you say it's Christian. 
But isn't it interesting how the Apostle Paul never uses that label of himself, never uses that label of any other believer? Paul does have a label he uses for believers, and it's a little prepositional phrase, in Christ. This is the way he designates believers. They are those in Christ. You believe into Christ, you are baptized into Christ. If you are a believer, you are in Christ. That is your identity. And your identity determines your destiny because you are in Christ, because you are joined to Christ, because you are united to Christ by faith. You have a new relationship to sin, namely, you have died to sin. What does that mean? Well, the Bible talks about sin in two different ways, and you may have noticed this if you're an astute reader of the Bible. The Bible talks about sin singular, and the Bible talks about sins plural, and they mean different things. So on the one hand, you'll find Paul writing, as he does in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul saying, Christ died for our sins, plural, that means he paid the penalty for our individual acts of wrongdoing. That's what is meant by sins. But here in Romans 6, and in verse 10 in particular, he says something very unique. I don't think he says it anywhere else in the New Testament. He says, Christ died to sin, singular. He's saying something different. And when he says, Christ died to sin, he's not saying Christ paid for the penalty of individual acts of wrongdoing. He's saying Christ broke the power of sin. Christ died to sin, meaning Christ broke the power of sin. Now, it's fascinating how the Apostle Paul talks about sin in these two chapters. It's not apparent in our English translations, but in the Greek, he uses the definite article. So he's always talking about the sin. The sin does this, and the sin does that. He talks about sin as if it were a person. He personifies sin. He depicts sin as a king which reigns over people, as a tyrant that oppresses people, as a slave master that controls people, as an employer who pays wages at the end of the day, but the wages he pays is death. Sin, singular for the Apostle Paul, is a multi-headed, monstrous person or power. And now he says that Jesus did not only die for our sins, paying the penalty for our individual acts of wrongdoing, he died to sin, which is to say that on the cross he broke the power of sin. This explains, I think, the enormous turmoil that Jesus experiences in the shadow of the cross. And you can see from Luke 22 that he regards the cross, he describes the cross in one place as the hour when darkness reigns. Luke 22. The hour when darkness reigns. He entered as he approached the cross into the realm in which sin reigns, the realm in which darkness reigns, and it evoked from him all this emotional turmoil. He indicates to disciples that he's deeply distressed. His soul is overwhelmed to the point of death because he was walking into the realm where sin reigns in order to break the power that sin has 
over people like you and me. And why in the world would he do that? Would he enter a realm that was not necessary for him to enter? It's simply out of love for you and me because he sees how sin is a tyrannical slave master that mistreats people and ruins their lives and leads them to death. And he wanted to see that stop. It's why the early Christians, as I indicated a moment ago, saw salvation as a new exodus. The early Christians saw immense significance, as should we, that Jesus died at the time of the Passover, that Jesus is the Passover lamb in anticipation of an exodus where people would be freed, where people would be liberated from a dark power. And it's exactly the kind of language that the Apostle Paul uses in Colossians 1 where he says, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That is Exodus language. It's what Jesus did at the cross. God rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have forgiveness and redemption. Here's Paul's logic, if you like logic. Think of a syllogism. Major premise, we are joined to Christ through faith. Minor premise, Christ has died to sin, meaning Christ has broken sin's power. Conclusion, we are those for whom sin's power is broken. We are those for whom Christ died to sin, which is to say, we died to sin. Sin's power has been broken for us. If that's true, Paul's saying, don't go on living as if sin still has power over you. Don't go on living as if sin is still your Pharaoh, as if you're still in bondage when you're not, when you've been freed, when you've been taken out of that kingdom and you've been put into the kingdom of the Son God loves. Two analogies to help us understand. When you get married, you get a new identity, don't you? You're now a married person. You're no longer single. You're no longer a bachelor. You have a new identity, and that new identity determines your destiny. Who you are determines how you are to live. And the the great problem, for some people at least, is that though they are married, they, they act like they're single. They act like they're bachelors. And you have to confront such people and you have to say, act who you are. You're married. Why would you go on living as if you're single when you're married? It makes no sense. That's what Paul is saying here. You are in Christ as those who've died to sin, as those for whom sin's power is broken. Why do you go on living as though that's not true? As if it weren't broken for you. Second analogy, on January 1, 1863, U.S. President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation that set slaves in Confederate territory free. 
the news did not reach slaves in some very remote places in the U.S. It wasn't until June 19, 1865, when slaves in Galveston, Texas, heard news of the Emancipation Proclamation. And I imagine that there were people going to slaves in Galveston, Texas, saying, don't you know, you've been freed. Why do you go on living as slaves when you've been liberated? That's the kind of thing Paul is saying here. Jesus has broken the power of darkness, the power of sin. You are joined to Christ by faith so that what he did is true for you. The dark power has been broken for you. Why do you continue to sin when you've been liberated? Your identity determines your destiny. Who you are determines how you live. So how many times this past week have you thought about your identity as a Christian believer? And how many times this past week have you thought about your baptism? Don't you know what baptism means? Paul says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Did you miss that class on baptism? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? How important is baptism to you? Because I discover for a lot of people today, baptism is not important at all. I taught a course when I was a pastor in Alberta at the Peace River Bible Institute. I had a class of about 30 students. I asked them one time how many of the students were baptized. Most of the class was baptized, about five students who weren't baptized. And I asked them why they weren't baptized. They were Christian believers. Some of them had been Christian believers for 10 years, 15 years. They were at a school, a Christian school, to prepare them for Christian service, and they had never bothered to be baptized. Why? Because they saw baptism as something optional, as something unimportant, as something insignificant, just a nice ritual that serves some kind of purpose, but not necessary at all. I think the Apostle Paul would have blown a gasket if he had heard people talk about baptism that way because baptism for him has massive significance, but we need to clean the garden of the weeds when it comes to baptism. And isn't it the case that many, many Christians today see baptism as a sign of what we've done, as a sign of our faith and Romans 6 teaches us is that baptism instead is a sign of what God has done. It's a sign of what's done to you. You are baptized into Christ Jesus. You are brought into a relationship with Christ Jesus. <clears throat> baptism doesn't point to our faith. It points to Christ, doesn't it? Now, Blessings is a Reformed church, and in Reformed churches, we talk about baptism as a sign and as a seal. A sign is something that points beyond itself. As a sign, baptism points beyond the water to the cross of Christ where Jesus shed his blood to launder our sins. A seal is something that authenticates a document, authenticates 
promises. And so as a seal, baptism represents God's sincere pledge to unite a person to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Your new identity as Christian believers is like marriage, which is why you need to say to some people, you're married, stop acting like a bachelor as a single person. But you can say more. You can say you have a wedding ring. How does it make sense to wear a wedding ring and act like a bachelor? That's the sequence that the Apostle Paul is using here. Union with Christ followed by baptism as a sign of the union. Don't you see the contradiction of living like a bachelor while wearing a wedding ring? Don't you see the contradiction of continuing to live in sin when you've been baptized, which demonstrates your union with Christ in his death to break the power of sin? So what does your baptism mean? Paul continues, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I made this point that early Christians saw redemption as a new exodus, saw themselves as a part of a new exodus movement. Jesus died on the cross at Passover as the Passover lamb, anticipating a new exodus in which they would be rescued from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son God loves, and they would also go through the Red Sea. But their Red Sea experience was baptism. And Paul makes this point explicitly, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, where he says, we were all or all of our ancestors, were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Shall you go on sinning that grace may increase? Nope. God forbid. By no means. You've been freed from slavery. That's your identity. You've been liberated. You've been emancipated. What's more, you've been baptized. You've gone through the Red Sea. You're now en route to the promised land. Don't act as if sin still has power over you. Don't act as if you're still under Pharaoh. Don't act as if you're still in Egypt. You're freed to obey. So your identity determines your destiny. Who you are determines how you are to live. And so think about your identity this week. Is it a license to sin? No. Think about your baptism this week. Is it a baptism to remember? Yep. Is it still confusing to you? Well, please come back next week, and I'll try again. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his great work on the cross, which is so multifaceted and complex that it's hard to understand the beauty of it all, all of the dynamics 
involved with Jesus dying, not only paying the penalty for sin, but breaking sin's power. And we pray today and this week that we might see ourselves as emancipated slaves, as those who have been freed. We don't longer need to sin. We're not under sin's power, but we can live a new life of righteousness for you. Please impress upon us this amazing new identity that we have so that it might be transformative by your grace in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.